Good morning. Today I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the past 30 years, battle lines have been drawn in the church, both in Australia as well as around the world, around the issue of gender roles, uh, both in the household uh, and in the church itself. Countless forests have been felled to accommodate the number of books that have been printed in this area and to keep, uh, and they keep coming. Happily, in recent years, more of these books are being written by women. Uh, one that came out last year is called Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, which is speaking particularly into the North American scene uh, and Southern Baptist scene in particular, uh, where there's a very defined view of what a role of a man and a woman is. There's been huge contention in this space. Now, these days, uh, there are sort of complementarians who are people who can describe themselves as complementarians and others who would describe themselves as egalitarians. Uh, you might be sitting there thinking you fit into one of those different categories uh, and are comfortable with that, and others might be wondering, what on earth do either of them mean? Complementarians take the view that Scripture teaches that men and women are equal in God's sight, but different. Men and women have different roles and therefore need to strive to complement each other in the outworking of that. Egalitarians take the view that Scripture teaches that men and women are equal in God's sight and that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are distributed not on the basis of gender, but on the basis of being distributed to all people to be used freely for the sake of the building up of the people of God. Men and women are equally gifted and should be able to use those gifts freely in the local church. Now, these are big debates and big questions and one way or another, it has dominated much of internal church discourse, in my view, for far too long, uh, and has become unhelpfully divisive. And in fact, in some circles, it's become the defining basis of orthodoxy. And where you stand on this issue will also, therefore, define whether you can actually participate or not participate in particular groups and movements. Now, one of the issues for any local church these days is that the membership of those local churches is made up of people who come from all sorts of different traditions and churches. I don't say that to be critical, that's just an observation. Uh, we saw that recently when Bishop Geneva was here and we had people who were received into the Anglican Church, and in some cases that was from various churches. 
And people are often formed theologically in a range of spaces and have particular views that come from those spaces. And then we come together as a church trying to be a church and to have some sort of unity around what we think and uh, what we believe and how we function together. Which brings us to 1 Peter 3, uh, 3 and 10 words that are bone-jarring and deeply unsettling for many people. 1 Peter 3 verse 1, Wives, in some way, some way, the same way, submit to yourselves to your husbands. And 1 Peter 3 7, Treat your wives with respect as the weaker partner. Now just imagine if those words were being publicly spoken at one of the girls' grammar schools in clock proximity to St. Columns. Or just imagine it was a school, a work forum, or an opinion piece in The Age, or a blog by a leading writer. There would be blood in the streets, or at least a Twitter sphere, about people having the temerity to express such arcane views in a public forum. And for many people, it would reinforce profoundly that the church is a place you wouldn't want to have anything to do with because we are still putting forward patriarchy and we have been liberated from that a long time ago. So what do we do with these words? Because we can't just pretend that they aren't there. Well, first off, sorry, a week ago, I was involved in a conference which honoured John Stott, uh, who came to Australia for the first time in 1965 uh, and had a profound impact from then in many times, many times after. In fact, uh, I was involved in putting together this particular journal which honours John Stott, uh, who, if he was still alive, would have just turned 100. And it's a series of articles uh, which capture his impact uh, in Australia and elsewhere. And if you want to get a copy uh, when we see each other again, let me know and we can help you to get one. Now, when Stott came to Australia in 65, he preached his way through two Corinthians and it had a profound impact because that was the first time lots of people had heard someone just work their way through a passage of the Bible, uh, in a book of the Bible rather, and to actually try and unpack what it was teaching. And if you're committed to that form of preaching, which I know you have been for a long time here at St. Columns, uh, then you will, in a sense, be in a, a challenging situation. You'll get to parts of scripture that are wonderful and uplifting and straightforward and clear and easy to deal with and other parts that are uncomfortable and troubling and that you have to work out what to do with. And that's what we're doing doing as we work our way through 1 Peter together as a church. Now, generally speaking, one would want to apply what's called the perspicuity test to the reading of scripture. Don't use a word that's hard to say, Hale. But anyway, the perspicuity, which means that Scripture is clear in itself. Now, this is the view that, uh, that, Christ, that any, when you read a passage, you should ask yourself, what is the plain meaning of the text? And if one were to apply this test to these two contentious readings, then the conclusion seems to be clear and plain and very uncomfortable if you happen to live in Melbourne in 2021. Women should submit to their husbands and women are the weaker sex. Now, fortunately, alongside of that particular way of thinking about Scripture, there's another way of looking at Scripture, which is that we need to read Scripture in its context, which brings us to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. In uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Wives, in the same way, submit to yourselves to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. Now, first off, let's note that Peter is addressing the wives directly. 
They're not being addressed via their husbands. When the letter of Peter was read to the assembled group of people in the household community, uh, which the various places that it was read at, the wives were present, just as the slaves who were addressed to last week were present, uh, and as were children in other contexts. Women in this situation had full membership of the household of God and were fully and freely accepted as God's children, just as the men were. There was no difference between men or women in that context. The work of Christ knows no bounds of gender, class, sexuality, or ethnicity. The idea is repeated again in verse 5. They are, to be, they are honoured in this way. We should also note that in the similar passage in Ephesians and Colossians, the children themselves are addressed directly. So what about the word submit? Well, the person who wrote the small group studies had notes at the back, and this is what it says. It's interesting to note that the term submit is used four times in the letter of 1 Peter. And in the first instance, it is probably self-evident as believers, we accept the authority of earthly rulers and are subject to their rule and authority. Similarly, a slave was to respect and live under the authority of their earthly master. They did this out of fear for God himself. On the other hand, wives be subject to their husband is different. The context appears to be wives with unbelieving husbands. They are not directed to obey their husbands as conceived of in the Book of Common Prayer marriage service, but it would be better to conceive of this as respect their husbands. Peter was writing into a patriarchal culture and we live in an egalitarian culture and we are therefore not obliged to maintain patriarchy. Well, that's what the dotes to the study guide talk about. Uh, so what are we dealing with here? Well, uh, Paul Barnett, who's a retired bishop in Sydney and a respected New Testament scholar, puts it this way in his commentary, it appears that for a wife to be subject to her husband means to honour her husband. Now, clearly for us living in Melbourne in 2020, it'd be kind of easier if the passage actually said that as opposed to the word submit, uh, but necessarily that's what we're wrestling with today. Well, moving on, we can see that the words so that are critical. The context Peter has in mind here is wives who had unbelieving husbands. His goal in this section, therefore, is to exhort them as to how they should live if they were in that situation. He's keen for them to live in such a way as to maximise the possibility that their unbelieving husband may be won over to the Lord. Now, to put this in context, in that era, marriages were arranged marriages. And sort of the romantic ideals that we have about marriage weren't necessarily a part of the framework. More critically, Peter, when Peter is suggesting here was highly unusual. In the ancient world, the wife was expected to adopt the beliefs of her husband, not the other way around, which is what Peter is seeking to suggest and encourage. Plutarch stated, it is becoming for the wife to worship and know only the gods that her husband believes in. And the historian Josephus put it like this, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly, accordingly be submissive, not for humiliation, but that she may be directed, for God gave authority to the man. That's the context into which Peter is speaking. So in this context in which Peter was speaking, it was a huge thing for the wife to have embraced the Christian faith, especially if it wasn't a part of her own household. It would have been even more striking that she'd even considered to seek to play her part 
to win her husband over to the Lord. As Bishop Tom Wright has put it, as historical studies have shown, this is in fact one of the primary ways in which the Christian faith spread during the first two or three centuries, despite the fact that the authorities were doing their best to try and stamp it out. In fact, there were many more Christian women around than non-Christian ones, since in pagan households, it was common to expose a second or subsequent girl child, in other words, to throw her away to starve or be eaten by wild animals, or perhaps picked up and reared into slavery, probably prostitution. Girls were considered an expensive and difficult nuisance. Christians, like Jews, refused to do this. So there were far more marriageable Christian women available. This advice was taken to heart, and as a result, Christian families grew in number. So what is the advice that Peter offers to these women who have unbelieving husbands? Well, they can impact their husbands, he says, by not preaching the word to them, but living out that word and reflecting it in the way they live through their attitude and their behavior. They will be impacted by the beauty and reverence of their lives. So this isn't about outward adornment, which was a big feature of culture in those days, but about the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter points to the example of Sarah, who he says obeyed her husband and called him Lord. Again, this is challenging. But as Bishop Parnett points out in his commentary, some of this was cultural, as it was the norm to see the husband as the Lord of the household. This one example doesn't establish an unbroken principle that somehow women therefore should obey their husbands. It's just an example that Peter cites. Now, all of us probably know women in this situation who have unbelieving husbands. I reflect upon a person who had a lot, had a lot to do with a number of years ago who had a very high-profile, prominent husband who was, and uh, she was a very strong, leading Christian woman who spoke at many conferences, but she fi- managed to find a way to honour him, to respect him, to seek to actually be faithful to him and to be a witness to him through the graciousness of her life and the people that she had in her life. So let's flip it to the other side. In verse 7, Peter says, Husbands, treat your wives with respect. Husbands, in the same way, may be considerate as you, uh, same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Peter's instruction to husbands may seem pretty standard to people like us be considerate and treat them with respect. But remember that they are heirs in God's sight of the gracious gift of life. In other words, that they are equal and one in God's sight. Yet we have the uncomfortable phrase as the weaker partner, or as it was classically stated, the weaker sex. It's important again for us to put this into context. The Roman world of the first Christian century was strongly patriarchal. This was also the case with Jewish husbands and their households. And Peter, what Peter is saying here is that the Christian husband wasn't free to do as he pleased with his wife if he was a believer. He had to model Christ at home and to treat his wife very differently to the way that he'd probably been brought up himself and the way in which was certainly reflected in the wider context. First off, he is to live with her considerately. This means that he has to be thoughtful and seek to support and uphold her. We may be repelled by the term the weaker sex, uh, but, she, but if we are to seek to think about it positively, it means that he will give acknowledgement to the areas where they can complement each other, 
The weaker partner refers to her being physically weaker, not weaker or secondary. But second, he is to honour her and to treat her with respect and to look up to her. She, like him, is equal in God's sight, and they are both heirs together of God's kingdom. And thirdly, this implies his sexual fidelity to her. In the world of the first century, it was a man's world. Men had courtesans for their intellectual and sexual pleasure, concubines for their daily sexual indulgence, and wives to provide heirs and to run the family home. A Christian household was to be radically different, and the man had the power to ensure that this was the case. Just reflect on the impact of these words over the century. Over the time, this ideal of a Christian marriage became the ideal of Western culture and is still, in many respects, the ideal of our world today. There is therefore no case here for the stereotype of the male-dominated household. Men were to treat their wives respectfully and to honour and serve them. And there is a greater goal in this, that nothing might hinder your prayers. Now, way back when I was a theological student at a very conservative theological institute in Sydney, the principal was fond of saying that headship, if you believe in the concept of headship, is not about domineering or controlling, it's about taking the initiative in service. And I always liked that, taking the initiative in service. Uh, recently, I was talking to a person that I'm involved with through a board that I chair, uh, and she's had a husband who's been a little bit slow to get into gear in sharing responsibility at home. Uh, so she's gently nudged him to lift his game into uh, playing his part in a more active sense in participating in the household. We're privileged to have uh, two children, both of whom are married, and I think one of the things I find inspiring about younger marriages these days is the way in which they actively seek to share responsibility both in terms of the household but also in terms of parenting. So what can we conclude in all of this? Well, first off, submission is mutual. I've always held to the view that in reality any marriage, in any marriage it requires a mutual submission to each other. It's a putting the other person's needs before your own. We each have our gifts and attributes and we have been blessed with each other in order to complement each other. Now, I don't regard myself as a complementarian and I resent the fact that the term has been colonised to, in a sense, purport or support a particular view of these matters. But in reality, we are meant to complement each other. And I've sometimes said that uh, Karen, my wife, and I are the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. We're both strong people. So in order to make our marriage work, we both have to actually compromise at points, we have to be flexible, and we have to seek to be mutually supportive of each other. I don't presume to boss Karen around, and she doesn't do that to me. We work on a mutual decision-making basis, uh, and that generally only applies to the bigger decisions because uh, that's the way it tends to work out. This, all works at, well, this will all work its way out in different ways for different couples. A number of years ago, Tim and Kathy Keller were in Australia and I was at a conference that they spoke at and they did a session on marriage. Uh, and in the course of uh, talking about marriage, they must have said about six times that they actually had a marriage that was based on biblical principles. That was very important. Uh, and then we got to a point where Kathy Keller... Uh, made the statement that she said there's only been probably five times in our marriage when I've said to Tim, you're the head of the house, you make the decision. Uh, and she said three of those times I was so sick I couldn't make a decision and the other two I didn't care. I mean, I've always thought that kind of captured 
the reality on the ground for most people. It's mutual decision-making, uh, and it has to be sorted out by each couple. But secondly, there's no place here for abuse or exploitation. We tend to fixate on the key words I talked about at the outset, submit and the weaker sex. The reality is that Peter's injunctions for both wives and husbands were radical in their contexts. Peter wanted husbands to respect and honour their wives. So as such, there therefore is no place for the abusive or disrespectful behaviour that will characterise some marriages where wives, in fact, do not honour their... Husbands do not honour their wives and, in an extreme sense, will often be involved in abusive relationships. Abuse and disrespect are huge issues in many contexts where the church reflects the culture more than the gospel. A mission project that I was involved in recent years, which is run by World Vision, is working in some Pacific nations which are 97% Christian and where family or domestic violence is rampant. So therefore it's rampant in the community and also rampant in the church. And that project is starting with church leaders at the highest level to acknowledge the issue with a view to therefore finding ways forward. So thirdly, patriarchy is not the biblical ideal. Wherever you stand on the issue of any complementarian or egalitarian divide, I think it is useful to reflect that we are not called to live as first-century Christians in the 21st century. As we, have, as we have noted, the first century was a context where there was a very defined hierarchical sense of relationships, uh, and that was, is referred to as patriarchy. As we wrestle with what the scriptures teach and the implications for today, we have to seek to work out the underlying principles and how to apply them. This is what Peter is seeking to do here. He speaks to men and women in a patriarchal culture and suggests a radical way to live very differently. We're fortunate to live in an egalitarian culture where men and women are able to serve and achieve at any level. In seeking to be faithful to Scripture, we don't seek to reject this and return to patriarchy. Similarly, last week, Karen talked about slavery. In a context where people were slaves, they had very little choice as to what they did. This doesn't mean that we continue to support slavery today or to seek liberation from it. Indeed, it was Christian leadership from people like Wilberforce and others that led to the abolition of slavery. We ourselves should be contending to free people who are enslaved today. And finally, one should ask the question, what's the point of a Christian marriage? Well, in verse 7, Peter says to the husbands, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. A great marriage isn't for your sake, but for the sake of others and the sake of God's kingdom. We aren't blessed with each other just for each other as much as we hopefully will be a blessing for each other. We aren't blessed with a loving family just to have a loving family for our own sake. We aren't, we, every marriage is given by God for the good ordering of society and for the sake of others. Healthy marriages will include others, and healthy marriages should be open and inclusive, not exclusive and closed. I would suggest that one of the reasons why our kids are still Christian is because of the impact of single people in our family's life who were active members of our children's lives as they grew up. And that was one of the great blessings of, uh, to our children uh, as part of their formation. Healthy marriages should model service and generosity. And healthy marriages should be committed to playing their part in the building up and extension of God's kingdom. Because we're meant to be blessed in order to be a blessing to others. 
And that's the vision that I think we all ought to cling on to and hang on to and hold out as we seek to live out our lives as married people today. Amen.